welcome to a new episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. This week, I speak with Dr. Sarah Bader about her work as therapy lead at Clerkenwell Health and how, with developments in the mental health and neurological disorder field, now gradually adopting psychedelics as a possibility for harder to treat patients, a new generation of therapists will, by necessity, have to be trained. Discussing the importance of a shift to focusing on face-to-face practical assessment as opposed to theoretical academic essays in order to affect this, not just for the purposes of combination therapy with psychedelics, but for addressing the general shortage of therapists around the globe, our conversation weaves the two parts, that of the patient experience and that of the therapist, crucially together. It's a hot topic this year. It's also an area of research that yet experiences much stigma. However, I hope you'll hear our dialogue through. And if you've any comments or questions, do feel free to share these via the editorial inbox. As ever, thank you for listening. This is web editor Nicole Raleigh. And this episode, I have with me Dr. Sarah Baitup. Therapy lead at Clerkenwell Health, a British startup working to revolutionise the clinical research landscape by providing a holistic one-stop hub for drug development, trial design and treatment delivery for complex mental health and neurological conditions. Welcome, Sarah. Nice to be here. Thank you. So Clerkenwell Health's vision is to fundamentally change the face of mental health care by building the clinical research expertise and care delivery platform needed for a new wave of mental health and neurological treatments, including psychedelic medicines and brain care technologies. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Okay, so today, listeners, yes, we're going to be discussing that work in psychedelics, specifically the inroads being made into using psychedelics for hard to treat or treatment resistant mental health disorders, but also the importance of training the next generation of specialised therapists required to deliver these treatments as well, people like Sarah herself. Now, before some listeners grimace or press pause, we're not talking nine perfect strangers or any Nicole Kidman type faux guru scenario. Indeed, if you've been keeping abreast of developments in psychedelics this year, you'll be well aware of the tangible advancements that have been made, with Australia, for instance, becoming the first country in the world to actually prescribe psychedelics. Those were MDMA, or ecstasy for PTSD, and psilocybin, or yes, magic mushrooms, for treatment-resistant depression, TRD. Both drugs have also shown potential for the treatment of anxiety, anorexia, and substance addiction. While most research related to psychedelics happens in universities and hospitals or is carried out independently by drug developers, Clerkenwell Health is Europe's first dedicated psychedelics clinical research organisation, working with a range of developers and committed to trialling drugs in combination with talking therapy in a pioneering move for the industry. But before we get into all of these specifics, I was wondering, Sarah, if you could tell listeners a bit more about you, about your journey to now. After all, as the former head of therapy research and training at Compass and chief clinical officer at ESO Digital Health, you've delivered over 30,000 hours of therapy. So tell me, what took you down this path to your work with Clerkenwell Health? So um, I've spent my whole career working in mental health 
um, and um, I'm quite um, an entrepreneur and there uh, is a golden thread running through my career. So as a therapist delivering therapy, um, um, I wanted to make a difference to the people that I was working with, but that really wasn't enough. Um, looking at the, the mental health landscape in the sort of 1980s, I was very dissatisfied um, and I wanted to, to do things better. So I founded the first primary care CBT service in the southwest of England, co-founded a chronic pain service with some colleagues, all in the service of giving people quick access to effective therapies. Um, I, I then um, became interested in technology and I did a, a master's in education specialising in e-learning and was working in universities as a lecturer. And I wanted to make a difference through the trainees that I was I was teaching. Um, and um, that was the segue to me becoming chief clinical officer at, at IESO Digital Health. That's a technology company. It's one of the first companies that was delivering psychological therapy using technology. And that was very exciting because they were using novel and innovative ways of delivering therapy. They were delivering therapy via asynchronous and synchronous text, which was amazing. And that became part of my doctorate. I studied um, these therapists because I had verbatim transcripts of every word that was said between patient and therapist. This is an NHS service and all of the clinical outcomes. And I started to learn what makes an effective therapy and a very effective therapist and what makes therapists not very effective. Um, we did lots of really exciting work um, in Europe and, um, and in the US and I met all sorts of very interesting people my job was very much about improving outcomes year on year. How do we do this better? How do we fine tune it? So this is making a difference now as a senior leader and as a researcher. And whilst I was at IESO, um, I was very privileged to be involved in a project with Compass Pathways. They were looking at using our technology um, at the time. Um, and I became very excited about psilocybin in particular. As, a, as an experienced clinician, teacher and therapist, um, I'm you know, used to working with some really, really poorly people. Um, and I could see that even if you had the best therapist in the world, some people weren't getting better. And in fact, if you look at the research, there have been no major advances in mental health um, for the last 50 or 60 years. So this was a really exciting thing for me. Um, and I could see that with psilocybin, that it had the potential to almost decouple the debilitating symptoms that really poorly people have. Um, and that gives you a window of opportunity to actually make them a more amenable to therapy. So people with very severe PTSD, people with treatment resistant depression, um, these people might engage with therapy initially, um, but they will then struggle. They'll say, I can't, I won't, it hurts too much, I'm too anxious, I don't have enough energy. But with I was observing people who'd taken psilocybin, what they experienced was those symptoms seem to just drop away. Um, and that's a really, really exciting opportunity to help them get better. I then became head of therapy at Compass Pathways um, and, you know, again, worked with lots of really exciting people around the world and learned a lot about psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and that kind of then takes us uh, sort of full circle to, um, to Clerkenwell Health. And I'm at Clerkenwell because our, our mission is aligned. 
I believe that um, there are a number of ways of delivering psychedelic assisted therapy, different, um, different models. But I believe as a scientist that we should be using evidence-based interventions and we should be learning what works for whom. Whereas traditionally in most research around the world, people are using what's called a non-directive approach. And this model is not theoretically informed. It's never been used in psychological therapy apart from psychedelic assisted therapy. And so we don't know whether the model itself works or whether it's the drug. And that doesn't seem very scientific to me. Whereas with things like cognitive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy and other evidence-based therapies, there's a very solid and robust evidence base that tells us approximately 50% of people will get better. So if psilocybin and other compounds can amplify the effect, that's truly exciting. So I'm here because I want to make a difference and I want to be part of finding new and more effective interventions for people who are really struggling right now. Definitely. As you say, right now in particular, there's been a massive increase, it seems, in mental health cases um, off the back of the pandemic, or perhaps it's just uh, more accepted for it to be um, noted that the mental health issue is there. Um, So focusing on the therapy itself, when it comes to psychedelic therapy, why as I say, when you take in psychedelics, why is the training of the therapist so important? I mean, it's been made clear from the outset in research and development into the use of psychedelics and mental health and neurological disorders that it is a combined treatment. That is, the psychedelic itself is not administered without a therapist present. But can you tell us why this is quite so important? Well, in the context of a a research trial, a randomised control trial, it's really important because the therapist and the therapy is one of the variables. Um, And so we need to ensure that the therapist is adequately trained to deliver the the therapy model with fidelity to the therapy model. So it's not enough to do a one-day training. You You really need to be able to ensure that that therapist is equipped with the skills. So that means using things like competency scales and fidelity rating scales and assessing therapists to ensure that they can deliver what they're supposed to be delivering. But it's really, really important in the context of a randomized control trial. And in my opinion, not all all, um, groups are taking this seriously enough. Um, I think often people will see a psychedelic as the golden bullet um, and the therapy as the Cinderella, and it's less important. I don't agree. If we are to truly understand what works for whom, we need to take training therapists and assessing therapists very seriously indeed. Moving forward to when some of these compounds become widely available and prescribable, like you said, in in Australia, it's really important that therapists have robust training. Now, we know from the research that about a third of psychological therapists around the world are awful. And I, I, I know that's very contentious, but I really mean that. And so therefore, if a third of therapists are awful, what does that mean for the field of psychedelic assisted therapy? Because we're working with a bunch of very vulnerable people by the nature of the disorders that they're experiencing. And then we're giving them a compound which makes them even more vulnerable. So therefore, it's more important, I would argue, to have robust training and assessment and professional development programs and accreditation programs so that we can up the standards. 
And it's also going to be very important in the future for the general public to have confidence that the therapist that is working with them is adequately trained, experienced and assessed and not somebody that's done a one day course somewhere and is suddenly calling themselves a psychedelic assisted therapist. Yes, I mean, that's shocking if that does exist, that someone can do a one day course and put that label on themselves. Wow. No. Um, but let's let's go into this slightly further. So, as you say, these these patients in particular are incredibly vulnerable. You're giving them these hallucinogenic drugs. So in the clinical setting, that role of the psychedelic specialist therapist, what does that involve? Can you give us more particulars? Yeah, it's very complicated, actually. Very, it's multifaceted. So one of the roles is to develop a therapeutic relationship. Now, we know that the therapeutic relationship in psychological therapy is really important, and it might account for up to 50% of the efficacy of that particular therapy. So that's definitely going on here. And then we have the delivery of a psychological therapy in a traditional sense. So assessing somebody adequately, developing a shared understanding of the problem that they're experiencing and using a range of change mechanisms to enable that person to achieve their goal. So those are traditional things that are done in psychological therapy. And then there's the preparing the, the participant or the patient to take the drug that they're going to take. But so there's an element of psychoeducation and education about that particular compound that they're taking so that the person understands what they are going to experience to the best of our ability to prepare somebody to understand that because people's experience, of course, is very different. But also to understand how can the therapist support them should they become anxious or distressed having taken that compound um, and also to trust the therapist and the team around the therapist that they're going to be safe. Because mm -hmm. we know that if people don't feel um, that they can trust the therapist and the team, that they're likely to put up barriers. So they're likely to fight the experience. And as far as we know, it seems that people who experientially avoid, and by that I mean they avoid the, having the experience, they're less likely to get the benefits um, from the psychedelics. So this element of feeling that they can trust the person, that they can let go, that there's a team of people that will keep them safe, that the drug is safe. This is a, a really key part of what that therapist needs to do. And then after the dosing day, after they've taken the compound, it's helping the participant, the patient make sense of their experience in the context of the goals, the things that they wanted to achieve um, in order to, to get better, to experience some, some gains from the whole experience. It's very complicated. There's a lot going on there. So this importance of the training of the therapist is paramount to something like psychedelic therapy. But at the same time, unfortunately, there's a psychedelic therapist bottleneck, though, isn't there? So can you tell us more about that and the impact of that and on the progression of such therapies as these? Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, there's a therapist bottleneck. There aren't enough therapists in the world to go round. There's a supply and demand problem. In some countries in this world, there are no therapists. And even in the most developed countries, America and the UK, for instance, there just is a shortage of therapists. So this is a problem per se. And it means that we need to think about developing a new workforce. Not only do we need to upskill the existing workforce, but we need to think about 
how do we develop a new cost-effective workforce? The FDA, for instance, um, would say that a psychedelic-assisted therapist needs to be somebody with a PhD, very highly qualified. But actually, there's no relationship with somebody that has a PhD in psychology or in clinical psychology and effectiveness. Equally, somebody who had just a, an ordinary degree and was just had one year experience could be better than, more effective than that very highly experienced, highly qualified person. Um, so what I'm actually saying here is I think that we need to rethink the, we, the way that we train mental health professionals per se. One of the difficulties and one of the things about training a psychological therapist that is different to any other healthcare professional is that we tend to assess them using academic writing. So we're testing, you know, are you good, you know, are you a good academic? Can you write an academic essay? Can you reference? Can you um, refer to the theory? And 80% of the assessment, in fact, in some cases, 90% of the assessment is just based on academic um, essays. Imagine a world where we were training surgeons and we, we'd ask them to write essays and that's how we assess them. Um, we know that when we're training surgeons, yes, they do have to write essays, but they put hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months of practice where they're being observed by somebody who is more experienced than them. They're assessed. But we don't do this in psychological therapy. What we say is come to university, write these essays have some patience, go and sit in a private room where no one can hear and see you because it's confidential. We won't work out whether or not you're being very effective. Record a couple of sessions, choose one that you think is best and submit it. We'll listen to that. And then we'll tell you whether you've passed or failed. And I think that's a load of tosh. I think it's disgusting. Again, it's very contentious. But perhaps one of the reasons why a third of therapists is awful is because we've got the training and the assessment completely wrong. So I think we need to go back to basics. This is one of the things that I'm campaigning around the world is let's change the way that we train psychological therapists. Let's put the emphasis on practical assessment. Can this person do what we've trained them to do? Would you want this person caring for somebody that you really cared and loved for? And I think that's the bottom line. And, and very often universities are, they're incentivized to pass people because this is about, you know, it's, it's about um, statistics um, and it's, you know, and it's about money, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to change the way that we train therapists. We need to develop a new workforce and we need to make damn sure that they can do what we train them to do. Absolutely. My goodness, that's shocking. Um, yes. As you say, with up to 50% of the efficacy of a treatment dependent on that therapeutic relationship, it seems bizarre that it's so academically weighted in the training at the moment and not person to person. So you say you're campaigning, Sarah. Indeed, there is a Clerkenwell Health training programme itself, isn't there? Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I developed um, the training programme based on evidence-based practice and pedagogical processes. So it's not something that I've made up and invented. It's based on a very robust evidence base. So it's looking at, you know, how do people learn? How do we assess people effectively? And competency frameworks and fidelity um, to the model that you're teaching. So it's a very robust training program. And I would argue, and I know it sounds a bit big headed, but I would argue that it's the most robust training program for psychedelic assisted therapy that's out there. 
I've rubbed shoulders and met and talked to lots of people who are, you know, who are d- delivering training programs around the world and, you know, very well known and, and you know, very uh, well regarded. But none of them are doing this competency assessment. None of them are putting a heavy emphasis on assessing whether those therapists can deliver the therapy or not. And none of them are using assessment as a, as a teaching tool. So I, actually giving people critical feedback along the way to enable them to, to learn and become more effective therapists is very theoretically orientated. Yes, there may be role play, but there's very little assessment. And I think that assessment's really, really important. The other difference in the training is that we're delivering different types of training. So we're training in the traditional sense of the non-directive approach, because in some trials, the pharmaceutical uh, industry want to use a non-directive approach, but we're also training um, in evidence-based interventions. So CBT therapists, acceptance and commitment therapists, counsellors, people who are highly skilled at delivering a particular evidence-based intervention, we're teaching them how to deliver that in the context of psychedelic-assisted therapy. It's a very, very different um, program. And we're working very hard with academic partners around the world to start to think about competency frameworks um, and accreditation bodies and formal academic pathways so that the public and healthcare systems can say, actually, we need people to have this qualification and this accreditation. And we know that we're getting somebody that's good. Absolutely. So as you say, it's a very, very different program. And um, you mentioned the FDA earlier. Now, back in 2018, the FDA deemed psilocybin a breakthrough therapy, but it was only late June this year that it released uh, draft guidance on the design of clinical trials for testing psychedelic drugs as potential treatments for a wide range of medical conditions. And um, according to Clerkenwell Health and the University of Greenwich, psilocybin could also, you mentioned cost earlier, it all comes down to cost and stats, but uh, you commented as Clerkenwell Health that psilocybin could also be a more cost-effective treatment option in the long run, at least in the UK. So I was just wondering if you could provide further insight into why we're seeing this shift in thinking to encompassing it in the grander plan and, you, you know, one only has to think back to the 1960s when the FDA was shutting down numerous LSD research projects. Where has this shift occurred and why do you think? Well, I I think that one of the reasons why the FDA and you know a number of research organisations and a number of academic institutions think that psilocybin and other com- compounds will be more cost effective is because we know that people who experience things like severe and complex PTSD, anorexia, um, treatment-resistant depression, they cost healthcare systems and governments vast sums of money in inpatient treatment, in drug treatments, in psychiatric interventions, in medical interventions, in turning up at accident and emergency, emergency services, social services, not contributing necessarily to the economic system because of you know not being fit for work or being able to work and this whole ripple effect. So if you think about health economic studies of people who are experiencing these very debilitating study, it's very, very expensive. And it 
arguably it also clogs up healthcare systems. So it means that healthcare systems are trying are focusing on the very poorlier people, obviously, but it means that other people who are presenting for the first time don't access healthcare, that there isn't enough, you know, that there are huge waiting lists. And so therefore, when you add all those things up, it's very expensive to treat people. It has a, a knock-on effect, not just in healthcare, but on, you know, other government spending and the effect that it has on healthcare systems because it creates huge waiting lists, um, then if, if, if you could deliver a cost-effective intervention that enables that person to get better and stay better, even if it was more expensive than one episode of traditional care, that's got to be a cost-saving. And imagine, you know, the, the impact, the wider impact on that. I mean, nobody's done this kind of study, I don't believe, but ima just imagine that wider impact on that person's life and those around them and their contribution to, to society as well. So, of course, we're looking at these things because it's the most promising treatment that we've seen in a very, very long time. And, you know, Yes, you know, these these studies were you know were shut down in the 1960s, but our thinking is changing and evolved, and thank goodness it has. Absolutely. So thinking about that evolution and the setting within which we're sort of focusing on today, specifically the UK, what is that landscape like? What's the state a of the psychedelic therapy training here in Britain, and b how far along are we into implementing psychedelics as a mainstream therapy? for those hard to treat mental health conditions? The landscape is in its very, very early stages. So we're beginning to see some universities showing an interest. So the University of Exeter has recently launched a module, which is a theoretical module for people who are interested in potentially becoming a psychedelic assisted therapist. It's it's not a, a tr it doesn't equip somebody or qualify somebody to be a psychedelic assisted therapist. And there isn't a training program um, that um, anywhere that where somebody, a therapist could go and they would be qualified to be a psychedelic assisted therapist outside a research trial. Um, and that's really, really important. So Clark and Well um, has a training program that is training therapists to become psychedelic assisted therapists in the context um, of a research trial. Compass Pathways is training therapists to be a psychedelic ther therapist in the context of a research trial. But that doesn't mean that that person is then qualified to treat the general public. Uh, undoubtedly, some people are delivering these therapies underground, but this isn't legal. And yes. it's not something that you know, we would encourage people to do because this is all about protecting the public. So we're in the early stages of talking to academic partners um, and the NHS um, about establishing an academic and clinical training pathway that enables people to, um, to become qualified and to deliver therapy as part of research trials so that the NHS, for instance, is ready once these drugs come to market with a workforce that are qualified and experienced to do this work. Yes, and talking about eventually coming to market, I don't know if you wanted to comment at all about the recent news that Clerkenwell Health is taking part in the Transcend Therapeutics Phase 2 study evaluating the safety and efficacy of methylone, a non-hallucinogenic rapid-acting neuroplastogen in patients with severe PTSD. Did you want to say anything about that? 
Well, this is amazingly exciting. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And the more research we do and the more questions we ask um, and the more compounds we research and investigate, the better. Um, and this is a very exciting opportunity to use a very, very different compound alongside psychological therapy. And it's very exciting, very interesting. I can't comment on you know, you know, yeah. the uh, early data shows, but I'm incredibly excited and what a privilege to take part in something like this. So lastly, what are your hopes for the future of this field in the next decade or the next two decades? My hopes are relatively simple. So one, I want there to be a robust academic and clinical training pathway with a competency framework and an adequate assessment um, with accreditation that requires somebody to engage in continuing professional development and ongoing assessment to ensure that we've got very high quality therapists delivering this therapy. That's, that's number one. Number two, I want to reduce some of the stigma that is attached to psychedelics that are often seen as well, psychedelic therapists are people of a particular type who maybe have done a few too many drugs um, and believe and, and talk in spiritual language. This, this is uh, with deepest respect, of course. I understand that that psychedelics are in firmly embedded historically and culturally in spiritual and healing ceremonies in indig indigenous people. Um, and that's where we've learned about you know, some of the you know, some of the possibilities here. But we're talking about world healthcare systems. And so we have to have ordinary, boring people who haven't done too many drugs delivering these interventions. So this stigma goes, it is one of the barriers to adoption, I believe. And so we need more kind of boring, academic, normal clinicians learning to deliver this who don't believe that you have to have taken a lot of drugs in order to deliver this intervention. What I'm saying is very contentious, but I think it's really important. And I'm saying this because I want this to impact on the ordinary, you know, Mrs. Smith, who's living with treatment resistant depression. Um, and, and I say these things for, for her and people like her. Thank you, Sarah. It really has been a pleasure. It's been enlightening. And let's hope the shift affects change. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. so that concludes another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at, at Pharma Forum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.